I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. This week, we'll be talking about the FSA, which was hit this morning by yet another high-profile departure. The FSA is in the process of informally splitting itself up into two pieces. That reorganization has sent a lot of uncertainty and unhappiness through the regulator. We're also going to take a look at results forecasts for Barclays, the last of the British banks to report. Barclays will cap off a results season that has been a lot more subdued this time than it was earlier in the year. And the impact of Basel III on trade finance. One of the many finer points of Basel III is that trade finance is really hit by the rules over the the capital that needs to be held against these lending commitments. And we're going to end this week with a look at Japan's largest investment bank, Nomura, and the news that it's got its eyes on potential acquisition targets in America. An acquisition also raises the cultural problem that has plagued the Lehman acquisition. I mean, there's been much talk about how Japanese upper-level management and the Lehman folks who got brought in after it collapsed have had some real cultural clashes. I'm joined this week by Charlene Goff, Patrick Jenkins, and Brooke Masters. Brooke, let's go straight to you first. Um, What's going on at the FSA? Who's leaving now? Dave Strachan, who heads their risk division, he basically is the guy who's at the moment in charge with planning the reorganization. The the FSA is in the process of informally splitting itself up into two pieces. That reorganization has sent a lot of uncertainty and unhappiness through the regulator at a time when banks are beefing up their regulation and risk staff. And Strachan, who has, to be fair, been with the FSA and the Bank of England for nearly 25 years, has decided this might be a good time to get out. He is going to be heading a um, center for regulatory strategy at Deloitte, joining actually another Bank of England regulator, uh, Cliff Smout. Does this indicate some sort of wider turmoil at the FSA? I mean, we've been hearing from a lot of people that the shakeup led to a real lows in morale there, that people are worried about their future, they're worried about their place under the new structure. Are we likely to see a spate of high-profile departures? Well, you know, we're already losing the two managing directors who are the number two-level people, and we lost the chief operating officer recently. Turnover at the FSA was higher in the first six months of 2010 than it was in all of 2009. There is definitely a morale problem. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of concern about what happens if you're in the part that's folded into the Bank of England. How will you get paid? Will, you're, will you be respected? Will you get good pay? And at the same time, as I said, the, the banks need these people. And so they're out there hiring, and they pay a heck of a lot better. The other point to make is that Mr. Strachan's department is the one that's really probably the most threatened, given that the Bank of England has got a bunch of staff who focus on risk who are reputed for for doing a very good job. And therefore, that department, I was just speaking to somebody internally at the FSA who was saying that department is a really political place to be within the FSA at the moment, that you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to jostle for a position of power in order to be sure that they actually get a job in the, in the merged bank FSA structure. It's definitely one to watch. Let's move on to results. We've got Barclays coming out tomorrow. Um, the word on the street has obviously been for some time now that we're likely to see pretty disappointing numbers. Um, Charlene, what are we supposed to expect tomorrow, particularly in light of results from some of their rivals last week? 
Well, Barclays um, tomorrow will cap off a results season that has been a lot more subdued this time than it was earlier in the year. The first half saw um, this big bank recovery and the feeling was a lot more upbeat. This time around, the banks have been a lot more cautious. There have been some signs that the pace of recovery may be slowing a little bit. I mean, they're still way ahead of where they were a year ago. Um, But the mood just a little bit more subdued and we're likely to see that again from Barclays. Um, Some of the trends we're likely to see would be uh, further improvement in impairments, but that would be offset by a much weaker uh, set of numbers from the investment bank, which obviously at Barclays is a big part of their overall figures. So we're just waiting to see whether that's sort of in line with rivals or whether Barcap has been hit a little bit harder than some of the other investment banks. One key thing that people are going to be watching at the investment bank is is really whether we get an increase, a further increase in the cost base at the investment bank, um, which really eats into those revenues um, as they're coming down. Because as everybody knows, Barclays has been really building up its presence, particularly in Europe, um, and Asia to ex- an, an extent, um, as it tries to match the strength of the franchise in the US. Um, but having hired those people over the last 12 to 18 months, um, at the same time as re- revenues are starting to fall off, gives them a potential potential problem on the cost yeah, base. Yeah, I think this is this is a, the big thing that people are going to be watching, particularly on the equities line again. But the, the big thing that's going to be looming out there, I think, is if Sparkly is going to have to set aside a higher amount of comp um, instead of crimping down on costs. We saw the only big bank that's done that so far and actually set aside a higher amount of net revenues to pay staff. This so far has been UBS. Um, and if and UBS's numbers were quite poor, and if Barclays, Barcap, that division matches that, I think there's going to be, the analysts are going to be quite concerned about that. There was also a report in one of the Sundays um, this weekend that they may set aside as much as £1.5 billion in comp for the third quarter that would put their total for the year at just almost the same as what they accrued for the entirety of last year. And that would um, create quite a lot of problems for Bob Diamond, who's taking over next year as chief executive. You know, this will be the first announcement that he's made as chief executive designate. So I would have thought he would want to go some way to sort of soothe um, that outrage, possible outrage over bonuses. Yeah, because it's not just a a problem for investors. It's clearly a political issue. That's a really good point. Um, Well, it wouldn't be the banking podcast if we didn't have some discussion of Basel III. Um, So let's move on to uh, a very good story in today's FT about Basel and trade finance. Uh, Patrick, do you want to kick off and sort of explain where we're at on this? Yeah, this has been a rumbling um, issue for a while. One of the many finer points of Basel III is that trade finance um, is is really hit by the rules, or it looks like it will be hit by the rules over the, the capital that needs to be held against these lending commitments. There's been some lobbying quietly in the background by some of the big trade trade finance houses. But um, it was interesting on Friday that this kind of came out into the open, really, when HSBC said the reason it wasn't doing as other as a lot of other banks have, have done and, and putting out a, a new ratio for what it expected its its capital to be worth under the Basel III rules uh, compared to the current ones was because it wasn't ready to accept that Basel III was a fait accompli and therefore that its, its ratios were going to fall. It's still lobbying and this is a, a, a pretty important sign that, as they say, this is an issue that could really have big ramifications for world trade. There are those that believe, you know, it could knock a couple of points off trade flows globally. So I think we are going to see this battle heat up. 
It's a really tough issue because what's happened to trade finance is it has been caught by a rule that was designed to make the banking system less risky by requiring banks to hold more capital against interbank lending. So bank-to-bank lending is risky because if one bank goes down, another bank is vulnerable. Trade finance is obviously more complicated because it's on behalf of corporates at either end. I think there is some move to see if there's some way to sort of segregate it out so that it both recognizes the riskiness of interbank lending but also recognizes that this is sort of a special case. It's unclear whether it's going to be resolved. I do know that the capital rules, which were supposed to, the really specific geeky details that everyone's been waiting for, which they were hoping to get out by Christmas, there's now signs they may slip, which is probably good news for those who are lobbying to change things. Probably a result of that lobbying, I guess, that the the regulators may be taking an even closer look than they expected to have to. These kinds of weightings are exactly the sort of thing that are going to be in the new details, you know, exactly what percent gets this. And And I do think it probably does recognize a sense among the regulators that this could be dangerous for the economy at a time when things are quite weak. A lot of banks have been saying in in the past few weeks that while they might not be entirely happy with Basel III, they're at least sufficiently comfortable with the rules to to accept that they are coming and that they you know th- this is what their new ratios are going to look like. So um, this is this is a the, one of the big remaining areas to keep a watch on, I think. And let's go to our final topic for today. Another FT story this morning about Nomura looking at possible U.S. acquisitions. Now, just as a refresher, this is the Japanese group that bought Lehman's, most of Lehman's international operations in Europe and Asia at the height of the financial crisis. They then have launched over the past 18 months um, a bid to build out organically, primarily by poaching people from rivals, a U.S. investment banking franchise. Um, and it seems to be a concession now that they need to look at something to get their headcount and their revenue growth in the U.S. to critical mass. Um, Patrick, it's something that you and I have been looking at for a while. What do you think about this story? Well, it's it's obviously a very sensitive topic for them. I think they, you know, they have been doing this organic builder in the U.S. as you say for the past couple of years, and there aren't much signs really that it's working. They don't report their numbers. I don't think specifically for the U.S. So it's very difficult to know what headway they're making. But anecdotally, rivals, you know, are only too too quick to point out that they don't see Namira as a, as a threat at all. And I think that's, you know, we, we've both been hearing rumours for the past few weeks that they've been looking to, been talking to potential acquisition targets. So I think it's no surprise that they're going down this route because no one ever really has succeeded in, in organically building out a US presence. But an acquisition also raises the cultural problem that has plagued the Lehman acquisition. I mean, there's been much talk about how Japanese upper level management and the Lehman folks who got you know, brought in at the, after it collapsed, have had some real cultural clashes. And so if they try to do it again in the U.S., they're then going to have three cultures going. And you gotta, you've got to wonder how successful that can be. I think this is the big issue. The Japanese management are very wary of acquiring anything that's going to lead to a cultural clash. The problem is, is I think, you know, they're sort of in this no man's land. I mean, one person described it to me as being in a rowboat halfway across the Atlantic where they can't go back and they, you know, have to go forward. But the issue is, is that is even acquiring a mid-tier U.S. investment bank going to give them what they need? They still won't have the balance sheet strength to compete with sort of the city groups, the J.P. Morgans, the Bank of America, Merrill's. You know, I think that people there are still talking about, is that really what they need? Maybe they should think about just tying up with another massive Asian institution, which would give them that balance sheet strength. 
I, I think there is a real confusion there about exactly what next step to take, but I certainly don't rule a U.S. acquisition beyond them. They seem like they, exactly as I said, I mean, the rowboat's got to go forward and God knows how, but it's going to go forward somehow. I think there is, as you say, there's a difference of opinion. I think that, you know, a couple of the top guys at Namura are very keen to make sure that they don't give up on this whole idea of breaking into the U.S. and that, you know, they push forward and, and make an acquisition to make a, a proper go at it. But I think there is there are elements on the board who are pretty nervous about that, um, thinking, you know, we don't double up on a failing bet. We actually get out now or at least retrench to some areas in which they have strong positions. So you, you kind of narrow your focus down to select areas. Um, it'll be very interesting to see which way they go. Well, that's all we have for today. All that's left is to thank Charlene, Patrick, and Brooke for joining me today and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.